Good morning, Valley Bible Church. First October Sunday of this year, and a beautiful day it is as well. We are continuing in the Word of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, what we have just sung is our declaration of faith. And when we say those words and when we mean them, I believe that demons tremble before us because as Paul prayed, O God of peace, crush Satan under our feet. We are in a spiritual battle um, every single day, and it is particularly probably more uh, intense on a Sunday morning when God's people come together. And that's part of what we will be talking about this morning is uh, uh, the demonic realm, the unseen world of of angels that are behind the scenes and how communion itself is one of those things that will bring us into the presence of Christ in a special fellowship of worship. So I would like you to pray with me as we seek that task this morning. Join with me as we pray. God, we believe in you as our Father, and we believe in your Son, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the cross of Christ, and we do all things for the sake of the gospel. And we believe that at this moment your Holy Spirit will speak through his word into our hearts and will change us more and more into the likeness of Christ. We pray that that would be so. And we pray, Father, that our message this morning would prepare us for communion at the end. God, we pray that we would be of one mind and of one accord in fellowship with you and with one another as we partake of the table this morning. We thank you, Father, for this visible reminder that you are God and that we are sustained and nourished by you now and forevermore. And so, Lord, we seek that task to understand these things better, and we pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to have you stand again. I know you just sat down, but we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to be reading verses 14 through 22. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 22. Please, would you give attention to the reading of God's word this morning? Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We've been talking for a number of weeks in this section from chapter 8, verse 1 to 11, verse 1, about the issue of the Corinthians going to idle meals 
in eating meat sacrificed to idols, whether or not that was the right thing or not. And Paul is warning them, as we saw very strongly the last couple of weeks, about idolatry. And we've talked about idolatry these many times, trying to figure out how idolatry works its way into our own lives. But my question for you this morning is, what is the opposite of idolatry? What is its opposite? We know that idolatry is lifting something up before God, making that thing or that person more important to us than God, that that becomes the object of our affection and our time and our energy, and that is wrong to do so. And we've been talking about that. But the opposite of idolatry is nothing more than true worship. True worship of the true God. And this morning we're going to see the, the fellowship of worship because the word fellowship is indeed a synonym for worship itself. When we are in fellowship with God, we are worshiping him. And so we're talking about the fellowship of worship because that word fellowship plays prominently in our passage this morning. So when we see the backdrop of the fellowship of worship, the true worship that God has designed, all else against that background, that backdrop, is, is a cheap imitation. It is revealed for what it is. It is a counterfeit. And we have to understand that the, the source of the imitation and the counterfeit of idolatry, it, it is not God, the source is not God, but the opposite of God, our enemy, evil itself, the devil. All idolatry, in whatever forms it comes in, is a dark parody of that which is true and revealed by God. And the proper way to approach the Lord is to be in fellowship with Him and fellowship with one another, and that is part of the fellowship that, of worship that we will talk about this morning. Communion, as you read, as you heard it read, is what Paul is talking about. It's not the main point. But he says a lot of important things about communion this morning that we're going to focus on so that we can see that backdrop of true worship. And when we see that backdrop of true worship, we see the, the tinny, artificial nature of the idolatries of the world. So in this passage this morning, we are going to be preparing ourselves for communion because the enemy has for millennia tried to counterfeit the worship of God with his cheap substitutes. The, uh, the Corinthians thought that they were harmless, but they are not. They are dangerous. So we're going to see the deep significance of the table of the Lord this morning. We're going to see the deep significance of worship. And we're going to, at the end of the service, we're all going to come forward like we do from time to time. We haven't done this in a while. We do this on Good Friday always. But this section will come forward. This section will come forward here. And this section will come forward here at the end of the message to make communion special this morning, that we would partake of it in a meaningful way. So as you listen to the message, as we go through this passage, this is all our communion discussion. This is the time of preparation because we will talk about what it means, but also what it doesn't mean and how the world draws us away. And so that you will have plenty of time to, to prepare your hearts to come to the table in a meaningful way and to partake of the Lord's table uh, appropriately. If you know Christ as Savior, we invite you to come forward. And perhaps throughout the message, you might place your faith in him this morning 
and therefore you are welcome at the table. So, the first thing that we are going to see in verses 14 through 18 is this. Our fellowship of worship is divinely established. The fellowship of worship of which communion is a microcosm is something that God has established. It is divine in nature. It is revealed to us by scriptural revelation and direct revelation to God's people. This is a worship that he has given to us divinely, and he has established it. Verses 14 and 15, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. We ended there last week because that's Paul's conclusion of verses 1 through 10 about Israel and the temptation. The temptation they were facing was a temptation to idolatry, and this command, therefore, flee it. Get away from it. This is the second prohibition to idolatry. The first was in verse 7 where he says, Do not be idolaters. And now he says, Flee from idolatry. It is forbidden. And then in verse 15, Paul is a little more conciliatory here. He says, I speak as to wise men, and you judge what I say. Paul has mocked them earlier in the book for their so-called wisdom, but here he allows for the fact that they are indeed reasonable They are his disciples, after all. They are well taught. And he wants them to, he says, you judge what I say. I I think that you will understand. I've given the prohibition. Now I'm going to give you some reasons. And he doesn't want to to just rely on the force of command. Don't do this stuff. He wants to persuade them with the truth as well. So what he says in verse 16 is this. Is not the cup of blessing... Which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? This is a rhetorical question. The expected answer is is yes. If you look at your your Bibles, there are actually seven rhetorical questions that he lists in verses 16 through 22. The cup of blessing, which we bless as a sharing in in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. The bread which we break is a sharing in the body of Christ. The, blood, the cup which we bless is a sharing in the blood of Christ. And the expected answer, of course, is yes. The cup of blessing is that, last, is that cup that Jesus raised on that night in which he was betrayed. Matthew 26, 27 through 29 says this, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is, as he demonstrated to them, poured out. It is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you new in my father's kingdom. Communion is this reenactment of that first communion the lord's table the blessing of the bread the the thanksgiving it says he raised it up and he gave thanks the giving thanks is that word eucharisto which means to give thanks of course but it's also uh why communion or is is often called the eucharist because it is a giving of thanks however paul in first corinthians 10 16 he says this is the cup of blessing because in the Jewish Passover, when, the, the, when they ate various elements, they would bless God in each one. And one of the cups was a cup of blessing in which 
the leader would say, and indeed Jesus probably did say, Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Ha'olom. Blessed be you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. He is the King of the universe, and we are blessing him, which means we are recognizing that all blessings flow from him. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And he is the blessed creator and sovereign over our lives. And communion is declaring that. The cup and the bread are sharing in the, bo- in the blood and the body of Christ. And that word sharing in 1 Corinthians is used four times in Paul in a few short verses. And Paul is making a, an important point here because it is the word koinonia, fellowship. It's not having coffee and cookies out in the foyer. That is a type of fellowship. But there is a deeper fellowship of worship. The word koinonia is a, is a word that means uh, uh, sharing, association, communion. In fact, the King James Version uses the word communion here, and that's why we call this communion. It is a communion with God, a union with God. It is participation in his life and his death and his resurrection for us. So, by faith... We participate in the benefits of salvation. When we come to the Lord's table, it is evidence that by faith in him, we're participants in all that he has given to us. The benefits of salvation. He is the one who has redeemed us and he spiritually nourishes us. With the bread and the cup, the bread from heaven and the the water that springs up within us that the Spirit of God has given. When we take communion, it is not just a symbol, but it is a symbol with deep significance. By virtue of our faith, we are united with him. And when we participate in communion, we are sharing in, we are participating in, we are in close union with his death and his resurrection for us with his blood. We are lifelong participants. Actually, we are lifelong and eternal participants in the gospel. And the Lord's table signifies that. It is our declaration of that truth. This is the fellowship of worship, the microcosm of all of our worship. Secondly, communion is a perpetual Reminder of our redemption. Every time we come back to this, Paul would say, and we're going to come to chapter 11. We'll probably do this again then. He has more to say about communion. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. Why do we need to remember him? Because we will forget. Let not me forget any of your benefits. We will forget those things. And communion is this perpetual reminder over and over and over again. Past, present, and future. The past, his redemption for us. Sacrifice once for all. The just for the unjust. In the present, the perpetual remembrance of his ongoing spiritual nourishment and his presence and his divine guidance and our ongoing, excuse me, renewal of our pledge to him that we are his people and the sheep of his pasture and we we are united to one another 
And it is also a perpetual reminder of the future. We proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Why do we do this every week? We didn't used to do this every week at Valley Bible Church. And many, many churches do communion on uh, uh, once a month. Some do it once a quarter. I've heard of churches doing it once a year. And the reason that they do it, don't do it all the time is, is usually the argument that, well, we don't want it to become ritualistic. We don't want it to become too familiar. Well, we sing every Sunday, don't we? We give every Sunday, we fellowship every Sunday, we preach every Sunday, we have all of these things. We read the Word every Sunday. Should we, st- should we only do this once a quarter so we don't become, you know, it becomes ritualistic? Everything that we do isn't in a, is in a sense ritual. We have our own order of service that we do every single week. And it is, in, it is clear in the Scriptures that the New Testament church And it is clear in church history that the early church, whenever they gathered together, they would partake of the Lord's table. Why? Lest they forget. And this is a time that we come back and we come together and we say, this is why we're here. This is our life. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is how we live. Communion demonstrates that in all that we do. Paul goes on to say in verses, uh, last part of verse 16 and 17, is not the bread which we break, sharing in the body of Christ. Since there is one bread, verse 17, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. One bread, one loaf, many people, and this bread is broken, as Christ did that night in which he was betrayed. And it signifies our union with Christ means that we are united with one another. And we are inextricably linked to one another because we are inextricably linked to Christ. And we cannot be divided from him and we should not be divided from one another. You see, at the pagan meals, and that's why Paul is focusing on the bread here, the deity to whom a sacrifice had been made was considered to be present at that moment. And that's why he's going to say you're consorting with demons. But for us, Christ is present. We know that Christ is always present. But do you know and you do know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Christ is present with you in a way that he's not present in other people, right? And when we come together as the temple, 1 Corinthians 3, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He is present with us in the same way that he is not present with the Kiwanis. In the same way, in the Old Testament, God was always everywhere present at once. But at Mount Sinai, at the burning bush, at the doorway to the tabernacle, when they saw the burning fire and the cloud of glory, God's presence was localized and manifest in a way that it was not in any other in the other any other way. And so he is here. We're not talking about this becoming the bread, the, the body and the blood of Christ. We're just recognizing and remembering that God is uniquely present to us as his people when we worship and particularly when we partake of the Lord's table. So since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Now, here's the thing. Partaking of bread is not the means by which we are united, 
but a symbol of it. We are not united. When we take the bread, that doesn't make us one. We are already one. In the same way that baptism, water baptism, signifies something that has already happened. We have been crucified with Christ. We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. We have been washed of our sins. And baptism outwardly signifies that. In the same way, when we partake of communion and we eat the bread, we have already been made one. 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to get to that in due time in a number of weeks. For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit for the body is not one member, but many. The body is many. We are many. We are unique. We are diverse. We are different. We are redeemed, but we are one in that. True unity. And our union with Christ signifies our unity with one another. And so our relationship with one another is based upon our union with Christ. Then Paul uses uh, the nation Israel to talk about how God instituted this fellowship of worship. It is divinely established by him. He says in verse 18, look at the nation Israel, for example, he says, are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in communion with participating with in fellowship with the altar? The expected answer is, well, yes. Paul is describing how true worship actually works. God has instituted true worship in sacrifice In Christ is the fulfillment of it. God has instituted true worship in sacrifice, and Christ is the fulfillment of that true worship, and communion is that best picture of it. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Communion is the retelling of that event. In Jewish worship, when a sacrifice was made, um, it was a joyful occasion. The sacrifice was, was made, and along with that were vows of renewal, vows of dedication, vows of, uh, of asking for forgiveness. And then the family would eat and they would share in the altar, as it were, They would share in the sacrifice and they would celebrate when they had that meal together, celebrating the the benefits of being in covenant relationship with God, that they could come and worship him and be in the fellowship of worship. And this was the, the relationship of the altar to the Old Testament saints. This is how sacrifices work divinely established and prescribed and revealed by God. But the enemy has perverted that. And we have seen throughout millennia, how do, how do pagans worship? What do they do? They have a deity, and what do they do? They make a sacrifice to that deity. They make vows, and then they eat the sacrificial meal. Where did that idea come from? It is a perversion. It is that 
that gross parody of that which is real. It is the counterfeit that Satan has disseminated throughout the world. If there is true worship, if there is the true fellowship of worship, then Satan will do everything in his power to create some kind of a counterfeit that will do what? Draw people away from the truth. Here's an example. Think about Abraham for a moment. Abraham was a pagan idolater, wasn't he, in the land of Ur. He didn't know, even know the name of God. If it weren't for the Lord calling him, he would have remained a pagan. In Genesis 12:7, it says very simply, when God appeared to, to Abraham, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord. How simple is that? The Lord appears to him, and, and Abram did what comes naturally. Well, this is the real God. This is the Lord. What must I do? I need to worship him. In fact, if you ever look at any um, um, uh, visual renderings of the, of the Old Testament with you know, the showing events, uh, Abraham is often typified by the picture of an altar because he became a worshiper. And the first thing that he did was he made an altar to the Lord. Where did he learn that? That's what he did with the pagan gods. That's what the enemy had, had introduced as a counterfeit. But now he had the truth. He had the religion and the religious part of it and the religious uh, ceremony, but he did not have the truth. And now that he did, he sacrificed to the Lord. So Paul's point is this. If this sharing, if this communion, if this participation takes place in true biblical sacrificial meals, then the same kind of participation takes place in pagan meals as well. Just as the nation Israel were participants in the altar, so are we participants in Christ, which is pictured in communion, and so has the enemy distorted that in other words the prescribed worship of israel is the standard by which all other worship is measured and the enemy will naturally seek to distort it and adulterate it and i use the word adulterate on purpose which comes to our next point our fellowship of worship must be un adulterated from the word adultery because idolatry is spiritual adultery against the Lord. It is something that is despoiled. It is something that is defiled. It is something that is wrong and out of kilter and our fellowship of worship of which this partaking of communion signifies must be unadulterated at all times. Verse 19, Paul says the next rhetorical question, what do I mean then? Hmm. That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? He wants to make sure that he's making the proper point there. And he's referring to their casual attitude to the whole thing. As they have said before, Paul, it's just an idol. We, only, we believe in only one God and it's just food. And they've argued that that they're nothing. And he allows that. Of course it's nothing. And they say, but Paul, you've taught us all things are lawful. And he's going to say that in verse 23 next week. We'll see. But 
all things are lawful must be understood in this proper context. Paul would grant that. But he says to them, there's more at play than you realize. And he's going to reveal it to them. Hopefully they're going to go, oh, you're right. Because in verse 20, he says, no. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, and here's the mic drop, boom. They sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become participants in communion with, sharers in demons. Just as communion is not just a piece of bread and a cup. In essence, it is, yes. But it represents something much more deep. It is significant. It is spiritual. And there is a spiritual dynamic behind this pagan worship. Yes, they understood that just, it's just food and they're just idols, stone, graven images. No, whatever. They're nothing. There's only one God. But treating that consorting with demons lightly has consequences. There's this dynamic between behind the Lord's Supper, and Paul is going to get to that later. And the communion, excuse me, the Corinthians are are misusing it, and some of them are being disciplined by God. And we cannot treat this lightly. Sometimes youth groups do. You know, we're going to have communion tonight, so we've got Doritos and Mountain Dew. Ugh. No. This is too important. This is way too important. And eating this meat knowingly at an idol festival feast is wrong, Paul says. I do not want you to become sharers and demons. This has the force of a command. He earlier said, do not be idolaters. Then he said, flee idolatry. And now he says, I do not want you to become participants in communion with demons. All false religion is a counterfeit of the true faith in Christ. And they are all instituted by Satan, all of them. Not some harmless imitation of the original, but dangerous and demonic counterfeits. They're this grotesque, dark parody of true worship, the true fellowship of worship. Theology is important. Theology is essential, 1 Timothy 4, 1 says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in these later times, some will fall away from the truth, from the faith rather, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. We have the faith once delivered, and we have the false faith that is running parallel. And where does that come from? It's not just the, 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 the thoughts of man. It comes from the enemy. Deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, and that's why it is important for us to hold the line on truth. And now, more than ever, in the days in which we live, the enemy is infiltrating the church with doctrines of demons, and we need to be careful. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, in whose case the God of this world, small g, He is the God of this world, not because he is a God, but because people um, place him above our God, 
Maybe they don't understand it, but they are. He is, in whose case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, all portrayed in communion, in the true fellowship of worship. And the enemy is out there working constantly to blind people's minds to the truth. He is the father of lies, Jesus told us. And he lies all the time. First John 5, 9, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. His power is greater than we would think. But God's is greater. That's why Paul prayed in, in, First Corinthians, in Romans 15, Oh, God of peace, crush Satan under our feet. For this is where God dwells. I do not want you to become sharers of demons. Verse 21, he says it even more pointedly, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You cannot. You must not. It is forbidden. These are words of warning that there are consequences, but it is also a prohibition. You must not do this. One necessarily excludes the others, and we cannot compromise because it is tantamount to adult idolatry. The argument is similar to the, the one that he left with um, immorality, where he's that whole in, in when he, that he began in chapter six, and he ends with flee immorality. But but what he said there was, God has created the physical intimate relationship between a husband and a wife to be this one flesh relationship. It is inviolable. To become one flesh, therefore, do not join yourself to a prostitute. You cannot do that. And the, the argument is similar here. You have been joined to Christ, united with him and one another. Do not be joined to the, the, the false gods of the world. You cannot do this. You cannot do this. We must be realistic and recognize that the truth will always be distorted. And when it is... It is the enemy that does this. Because where there is evil, there is an evil one. Where there is evil, there is an evil one. And all worship that does not comport with this does not come from God, but comes from the evil one. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Pure worship is that which has been given to us and the enemy will continually seek to pervert the gospel and pure worship and theology and our view of the world and we will see it in a cockeyed way if we're not seeing the world through the prism of Scripture in Christ Himself. And if we are in fellowship with Christ, we will be uncomfortable with those things that the world always throws at us which brings us to our final point in verse 22 our fellowship of worship must be unrivaled god does not take suitors lightly 
He cannot be. Um, there is, isn't anything that rivals him or comes close to him. And our fellowship of worship with him must be unrivaled. Verse 22. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? No, we shall not. We're not stronger than he, are we? Provoking him to jealousy in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Um, the song of Moses says this. Listen carefully to the words. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known. See, nothing's changed from then to Corinth to now. New gods who came lately, whom our fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation. Sons in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. Do you get the idea that God does not like idolatry? It is the chief sin against him. It really is. That we raise something up, maybe not... Um, some physical thing, but an idea, a person, a place, a thing that we raise up above God. And we cannot presume upon his grace like the the Corinthians were doing, like the Israelites did in the wilderness. They tested Christ. Oh, well, we've got a covenant. We're okay. We can just kind of convert, convert with these things. And we have to be careful that we do not either. We live in a culture where Eastern religions are becoming more and more prominent. Hinduism and Buddhism. And there are all sorts of uh, uh, spiritualist things in our, in, our, um, in, our, um, in our society we need to be careful of. And, and you've heard me say many times, I think it is good that, that the church has cast off the legalism of fundamentalism, the legalism part of that. But with that has come a presumption of grace. Well, these things aren't important. You know, like Ouija boards and tarot cards and astrology. I don't see any significance in those. It used to be people would say, you know, we had strange things happening in our house. And we discovered this Ouija board upstairs in our attic. We didn't know it was there as if it had some power. It doesn't have power. Just like the demons or the, the, uh, the, the, the things sacrificed to idols, they have no power. Tarot cards have no power in themselves. Your astrological forecast has no power in itself. But where do they come from? And when we partake in them and when we treat them lightly, we're doing the same thing that the Corinthians did. Nowadays, we have more and more uh, Muslims in our midst. And you might meet someone, maybe at work, and they may talk to you in their break place. And they might say to you, well, you know, we worship the same God. We just, we just know that his name is Allah. No, his name is Jesus. His name is Yahweh. 
He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and He is the God of gods, because all the other gods of the people are idols. And He is the Lord. Simple things today like yoga. Oh, it's a stretching exercise, and I just go to the gym, and I'm in a yoga class. Just be careful, okay? Do you say namaste? You know what that means? The divine in me bows to the divine in you. So when you go to yoga class and everybody's doing that and you think, oh, it's just a thing that we say. No, do not take it lightly. It's just yoga. There's no religion. I don't attach any religious significance to any of these, these things. That's exactly what the Corinthians were saying. Exactly. And we must be very, very careful. At a couple some time ago had been, uh, they, they had a very difficult in, in decision to make because they had invited to go to a, uh, the baptism of a young girl that they knew for many, many years, and she was being baptized into the Mormon church. And they prayed about it, and they thought about it, and finally they said, we can't do that. Because if we do, we are affirming something that is false. We are standing in solidarity with the doctrines of demons. Even Satanism and Wicca is, is getting a, a foothold amongst young people. And we have to be careful to warn them. I saw a news article about the Idaho Satanic Temple. And they filed suit against the state of Idaho over the uh, uh, prohibition of abortion. And their, their filing a suit against the state of Idaho on the basis of religious freedom because they want the freedom to perform, quote-unquote, protective religious ceremonies prior to abortion. And their, their freedom of religion is being imposed upon, impinged upon, rather. Who's being protected? They want to perform protective religious ceremonies before an abortion. But here's the thing. I saw this news article on one of our local news websites, and the, the, the newscast was telling the story and, and, and told the first part. And she said this, quote, unquote, To be clear, the Satanic Temple doesn't worship Satan, with a smile on her face. They believe in supporting the scientific understanding of the material world. First of all, why the editorial comment? And second of all, who told you that? She must have had an interview with one of the members of the Satanic Temple. And what did they say? Oh, we don't worship Satan. So says the people who worship the father of lies. And we need to be careful of these things because they are coming into our society. People like Oprah Winfrey, who still says that she's a Christian, but she does not proclaim the gospel, but rather New Age and Eastern mysticism. You see, when we have this enlightened view that we can participate in these things that are all around us, we are being Corinthian. And we need to be careful. And God will be provoked to jealousy. There's a negative side to jealousy, and there's a positive side. When we are jealous of someone because they get accolades and we think evil of them, which is like envy, and we're jealous of them, that's wrong. But what husband who loves his wife dearly would not feel jealousy if she were responding to the flirting of another man? And rightly so. 
And God does the same. We are his bride. And when we respond to the flirting of the world and those things that pull us away, he steps up and he says, this is my bride. And I am jealous for her. Jealousy of God is proper and good. And it is indicative of his complete love and commitment to us as portrayed in the Lord's table. So in conclusion, two things before we're going to come up to the Lord's table and we're going to ask the musicians to come up. First of all, our worship of God is to be pure and undefiled. It must be pure and undefiled. It cannot be adulterated. And we need to recognize that the defiling of that is a spiritual matter. There is a spiritual war that is going on. It is happening this morning. It has happened in your life perhaps already this morning and every single day that you seek zealously to be jealous for God, you will always be found by the enemy and and he will give you things to pull you away. And finally, God jealously desires our allegiance, our love, and our worship. He wants us. He loves us. He wants us to come forward. And he wants us to meaningfully and regularly take part in this communion, this fellowship, this participation in the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. He wants us to do that, to keep our minds and our hearts focused ever upon him, perpetually remembering his benefits as we are singular in our love And our devotion of Christ who died for us, who continually nourishes us, and who is coming back for us. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to have our elders who are going to help have you come forward for communion. Would you pray with me, please? Thank you, Father God, for this microcosm of all of our worship, all that Christ has done, all that he is, all that we are together. Our sins have been washed away. We are clean before you. We have been made members of your body and members of one another by the bread that we partake this morning. And this morning we are to drink from it, all of us, and we are to do this in remembrance of him. And we do so now with great joy and thanksgiving, blessing your name in the name of Christ our Savior.